This is Tommy's Outdoors 132. And today we are going to talk about freshwater lakes. And this is another episode from the series where we talk about the conservation action plans that are being developed as a part of the CAN project. If you're interested what the CAN project is and you missed the previous episodes, we talk about CAN project in general, introducing the project in episode 130. And in the previous episodes, 131, we talk about raised bog. And today, like I mentioned, our freshwater lakes and uh, especially, especially the, the areas are Magravili, Kilruski, Lake Cluster, I hope I pronounced it correctly, and Loh Aro. And these are very special habitats um, and very unique. And why they're very special and why they're very unique, um, you will learn from our conversation with Professor Francis Lucy, who is a head of the Department of Environmental Science at the Atlantic Technological University, and Dr. Jörg Arnscheid, uh, senior lecturer at School of Geography and Environmental Sciences at the Ulster University. And um, yeah, so uh, another very interesting episode. And uh, during our conversation, among many other things, you will learn about invasive species and how to fight those invasive, invasive species and how to prevent their spread. You will learn about native white-clawed crayfish and you will learn about crayfish plague and what's the story with that um, and you will also learn about the importance of the local communities and engagement and uh, how anglers are being uh, engaged in developing those uh, uh, conservation action plans and helping and supporting uh, scientific work that's going on on those lakes and remember if you like this podcast and you like to learn more about the uh, science and nature science uh, you should definitely subscribe to Tommy's Outdoors newsletter. The link is in the description of this show or just go to newsletter.tommysoutdoors.com and subscribe to the newsletter there. You will be notified about new episodes of the podcast as well as other projects and uh, initiatives that we're uh, working hard here at Tommy's Outdoors to uh, bringing that to you and communicating science and uh, uh, communicating those uh, concepts and presenting balanced views on often uh, difficult and unpopular subjects. Today, I think there was like no unpopular or controversial subjects, but very important subjects related to uh, conservation. So uh, yeah, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Freshwater Lakes and Professor Francis Lucy and Dr. Jörg Arnscheid. Francis and Jörg, welcome to Tommy's Outdoors. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. As usual in those cases, I think that the best way to start is with a round of introduction. All right. Well, my name is Francis Lucy, and uh, here I am in Ireland, in Sligo, at the Atlantic Technological University, where I am an ecologist. Yeah, my name is Jörg Arnscheid. I teach environmental science at Ulster University. I uh, I'm a water scientist in the broadest sense, 
And currently I'm um, in the United States um, as a visiting scholar at the Great Lake Michigan. We already had two episodes uh, about CAN project and and people interested uh, can go back, look back to the previous episodes and listen uh, about some other work packages and listen introduction to the CAN project itself. But for people who are just tuning in and they didn't listen to the previous episodes, can you just give like a very quick explanation what the CAN project is and what is the work package that you are working on as a part of CAN project? Okay, well, the, the CAN project is funded by by the European Interreg program and it's it's a, an acronym for conservation uh, actions for nature and network where we're working on uh, very many uh, sites of conservation uh, importance across the island of Ireland and also in parts of Scotland. So we're working on freshwater sites. We're different to the other the other terrestrial people that you've been interviewing. We're, we're a rare and special species here today. And because it's an, an interact program, the big chance there is also to work on cross-border sites. So we have a number of those that... Uh, you know, we specifically are working on physically cross the border where the management may be different on both sides. Um, you know, we've got one very interesting site, for example, where on one side it's a designated um, conservation area and the same lake on the other side is not. So the border actually runs through the center of the lake, but we know that, that na- nature knows no boundaries So and water knows no boundaries either so it's 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 very interesting the lake is called uh, maybe because of that situation i don't know dummies lake or dummies loch <laughs> it's uh, not very large it's like five and a half hectares to six hectares surface area so what is the work that you're doing you're doing like an ecological assessment or is it like so is it like a purely research and trying to you know, find out what's there, or is it also part of like a, you know, conservation work and, and improvement of the habitat and so yeah, on? Yeah, that was the whole idea of the CAN project, really. Of course, we need to monitor at the start and we need to map what's there, but then we're implementing, um, you know, management and we're also making recommendations for future management. So that's that's what it's all about. I think the research that Jorg and I both are involved in is very much applied research. We don't. We're not into blue skies research. All our research has um, uh, positive outcomes. We hope. Well, it definitely has outcomes. Yeah, all about the management. Yeah, we are at different stages though. In some, like in the CAM project, there are surely sites where they pretty much at the start of the project were aware that there would be one big issue, and you know they already would have mapped out exactly what they would do to mitigate that issue and then there are other sort of teeny weeny sites that are all different where um, actually then the assessment is a big part of the project because it's no good going in there with big ideas saying you know this is what we're going to do before you actually know um, you know what the problem is and that's yeah yeah. and also 
Yeah, isn't that? That's the fun of working with freshwater, really. And the challenge is that you don't know what lies beneath. I mean, if you look at a similar area of land there to the to the area that, that um, Jörg was talking about, that lake, you can see what's there. You can go out, you can map it straight away. But when it's in freshwater, you don't know what the plants are. You don't know what the animals are. You have to assess the water quality. So there's a, there's a lot more to it. And it, it's more mysterious and interesting. You have to suss that out before you can implement any sort of management action plans. Hmm. And how many of these sites you're you're having your in your in your project? Well, um, on my side, we're working on one lake, one one bigger lake, Loch Arrow. It's not terribly big. I mean, it's about three miles long. Jorg then is working on a on a series of, of smaller. Um, precious lakes, the cross-border ones, are lock arrows in actually, all in um, in in the south. So Jorg, maybe you you want to talk about those lakes? Yeah, we've got. Yeah, depends on how you count. So <laughs> we've got uh, seven or nine lakes. Um, so they they would uh, according to the documentation, there would be seven lakes, but one of them. So historically, one lake, but has been sort of subdivided by the uh, large plants that grow around the uh, water body, actually into three uh, separate water bodies, which however are still connected, but they have their own uh, characteristics. So that's why we've sort of looked at them also individually. But so the typical sizes. Uh, you know, something like two to three hectares. The the one that I mentioned before is the largest, actually. Your your work consists of um, kind of looking at the habitat on those lakes and also on the on the animals. So can you just uh, tell us a little bit, like what type of what type of habitats uh, you know you you're dealing with on on those sites and why why either why why are they important? Well, that's a very good question. Well, Loch, Loch Arrow, which is 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 the biggest lake, that is um, it's a special area of protection for for wild birds, and it's a special area of conservation because it's a it's a special type of alkaline lake. That's for anybody who knows the pH scale. It's 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 up 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 sort of a, a up above, well up above seven between between probably around eight pH eight. So, and um, what's what's there in that lake that's very special? A particular type of algae called uh, stonewort. They're they're caryophytes. They uh, why are they important? Because they form the freshwater um, parallel of coral reefs in lakes, and they're beautiful and they're diverse and that there are m very many species of them. And um, in in uh, these little caryophyte forests, you get a lot of uh, the smaller insect life and um, freshwater crustaceans. And then um, you're going to get uh, fish feeding in there. So it's protection, it's habitat, and it's a it's a hunting ground. So they're very special lakes. Apart and and. Um, so that I'm not hogging the program from York. Loch Arrow is also very special because it's it's largely spring fed. So what a lot of people don't realize when they see rivers and lakes is that they're often uh, very close to the water table. So there there's water coming up from the ground as well. But Loch Arrow is is um, 
is a spring-fed lake, and it's it's got very clear water because of that, clear alkaline water. So that's why it's special. It's also one of the premier wild brown trout fishery lakes in Ireland. Wow. And is there like, this is that active fishery, so people are allowed to fish there? Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's a publicly owned lake. It's it's managed by a state agency called Inland Fisheries Ireland, um, who do a very good job managing the lake. And anglers come there, particularly in um, May, when the mayfly is up to to fish the trout. So there's a lot of boat activity on the lake. People just go stir crazy. Those anglers who like to catch the trout, they're out there as soon as the mayfly is up up. Yeah, I was, I was gonna, I was gonna. So, so overall, what do you, how you would describe the condition of that lake and of the habitat right now? Is it favorable? Is it unfavorable? See, it's no, it's actually on, it's actually unfavorable, which is very disappointing. And um, unfortunately, that's the case in Ireland at the moment. Um, only fifty percent of all our fresh waters are um of of good or high quality so we've got we we've we've got almost 50% that are failing that test um and for lots of different reasons um the decline in water quality is linked to human activity mainly of course it's us humans that are doing the job on this but climate change isn't helping either the raise in temperatures not helping um but different activities in the catchment um, forestry, um, agriculture, and of course, um, human, um, also human um, inputs of wastewater. Um, well, although the, that there's treatment plants there on the lake, there's obviously something happening there all the time, and the nutrient levels are up, up, up above where they should be, Tommy, and that's that's affected these carophytes. And then we have the big invader. So our biggest challenge in this CAN project is managing a new um, invasive plant, uh, Nuttall's weed, which is known as Elodia natalii, um, that just arrived in the lake about maybe 10 years ago. And it's taking over a lot of habitat. It's taking over a huge amount of habitat and competing um, with those stoneworts that I was just telling you about. So the stoneworts are being, they have a double whammy, the decline in the water quality, and then this particular weed taking over from okay. them. That's a, I presume that's non-native invasive species. It's a non-native invasive weed, yeah. yeah. Right. And, and in New York, on your side, is it you're dealing with a similar um, types of habitats and problems, or is it like says different? It's, of course, different in size. So uh, there's lots of uh, smaller water bodies. Um, but they are special in the UK context because there aren't that many hard water uh, lakes that were nutrient poor uh, in the UK and also not in Northern Ireland. That's why they were you know, put under uh, protections or um, you know, designated as, as uh, conservation sites. They also had a lot of these uh, carophytes, uh, probably still 20 years ago, um, which from uh, people that I've talked to who did the surveys then were forming dense uh, meadows. So on the bottom of the lake, 
And as Francis was saying, that's an important uh, place that provides cover, provides also like a third dimension. Whenever you get a plant growing on a lake bottom or the sea bottom, sea bottom you find that the diversity of uh, animals uh, then increases because just because of, for one thing, just because of the structure. But uh, the other thing that they did is, I mean, they're called stoneworks because they uh, encrust themselves, or at least some of them do, with uh, you know, a calcium carbonate uh, crust, which uh, also probably helps to uh, keep the phosphorus, uh, so the, usually the limiting nutrient in these uh, systems, uh, bound. And that means it's not available for uh, phytoplankton, and that's why uh, these lakes were once uh, known for the clarity of their water. So they were like the jewels in the crown of, uh, you know, that area there uh, near the border around uh, Clonus. And not many lakes are like that. So, you know, if you probably, if your listeners uh, have uh, walked near a small lake, it will, in the summertime, you know, they will remember dark green waters because a lot of them are very nutrient rich. And these were different. And that's, I think, in terms of uh, sort of landscape, uh, if, you, if you take a landscape uh, scale view, uh, that is important because that adds to the diversity that you have actually some lakes that are and remain nutrient poor. Unfortunately, you know, they have um, gone downhill in that respect. And these are of processes that work over long time scales. So we have for one of them, there's an indication that that may have set in in the 1950s, which so that's from a, a core investigation that they've uh, done some years ago which uh, would tie in with the period sort of when agriculture was generally intensified in, in Europe. So that makes sense. You know, a lot of uh, drainage uh, intensification. And that means, you know, maybe not large transfers in a particular year, but, uh, you know, if, you, if there is a transfer of nutrients from the land uh, over decades, that changes the system. And in the end, it has led to the, yeah, pretty much a decline of the uh, carophytes. That means also the phosphorus isn't bound in the same way and there are lots of other consequences as well. You know, when you're saying like a nutrient's poor, you would like, you would think that this is something bad, but this, in, that, in this case, I, I presume this is actually the thing that is, that stands out, that makes those habitats stand out, they're nutrient poor, that's in a, in a good sense. Yeah, the nutrients are the, the best thing is just when they're held back, right? You know, you have just the right amount. And a lot of our systems in Ireland are just, uh, and naturally they would be just at the right amount because they're on limestone and they're what we call mesotrophic. But, you know, you bring in your inputs and then it's like, foom. It's like your lawn at home, Tommy, if you went out and you spread fertilizer on it and it just takes off. It, it, we're, that's what we're basically talking about, fertilizing lakes. And sometimes these inputs, Jorg is talking about, they come in and they're sitting on the bottom and they can get resuspended. And we don't, and, and that's actually really, really complex. 
And I know Jorg, Jorg's PhD student was looking at these changes in a number of these small lakes. Every lake is different and it's every lake is different over time and depending on all these different processes that are taking place seasonally and man's inputs and it's like you know when you make a cake it's always different it, it's a bit like that uh, in a very simple way of looking at it it's almost impossible and fascinating to see so we we try to design you know in ireland in in europe in the united states everywhere you're trying to design you're trying to model now you're putting in all the data over many many years to see what's driving this and how can we manage it but it's like a best guesstimate you know we're a long way off actually even finding out what's making the changes not to mind how we actually could manage them you know in a in a socio-economically acceptable way you know yeah, i think francis yeah. example of the of the lawn is uh, is very good that might bring it home Basically, if I don't uh, fertilize my lawn, I get uh, even orchids growing there. You know, um, but if I put the fertilizer on, they won't show anymore. They be outcompeted, and uh, that is. But you know, of course, the lawn gets more productive, so you you know you get a lot more grass out of it. So if you just look at a lake and say, I want more fish out of this lake, well, then you'd be happy with the nutrient enrichment. But as I said, if you take the look at the landscape and you say, I want a diversity and I want to preserve as much, I want to give space for all the animals and plants that have been here historically on this island, uh, then I have to preserve those places that are nutrient poor and, and keep them nutrient poor as long as I can. That's very interesting. Uh, folks, what would you, what would you say to like a layman asking question like okay so but why 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 are there important those nutrient poor habitats those nutrients poor lakes right you're gonna put like a, a lot of like nutrients nutrients are a good thing and then you have fish and all these life sp everything springs to life in those lakes so why we even bother of trying to preserve nutrient poor lake because of a you know, carafite, stone, you know, like, so wh why why it is important? I'm obviously playing a little bit of a devil's advocate here. Oh, we know you're being provocative. Okay, so, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, I, uh, yeah, I think most people nowadays have heard about biodiversity, you know, even if they might not really know exactly what it means. So, you know, we're... As Jorg was saying, you're trying to keep all the species that are naturally present because, you know, we 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 want a very rich ecosystem. We want um, our lakes and rivers to have as many of those species, you know, and some of them are what we call keystone species. They're like really important in those systems. So I don't know if Jorg wants to talk about the keystone species that they were working on in, in, in his lakes. Yeah, I would say the carophytes are also keystone species for the reasons that we've uh, talked about because you know they generate that uh, third dimension and if they disappear uh, then a lot of the invertebrates that are usually not monitored uh, disappear with them um, I think yeah so the you're the crayfish is yes, really yeah, what I was talking about <laughs> 
Yeah, so we are we are also uh, working on on crayfish in these uh, lakes. There are um, yeah, perhaps a bit of an unusual species in that, uh, depending on which historic view you take, you might say, well, are they native or are they not? <laughs> because they've come here in the in the Middle Ages, um, and um, Julian Reynolds, I think, as a scholar from uh, uh, Dublin originally, he uh, had gathered evidence that they would have come from France when the suspicion is that they probably came with monks, you know, uh, liked eating them perhaps certain times of the year and uh, put them into lakes. So you might say at that time they would have been an invasive, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they have... Uh, We're talking about the white claw uh, crayfish. So it's the only... Uh, um, sort of European species that there is uh, in in Ireland is also found in uh, uh, on the other island in the UK, so England. Um, and these uh, European species have generally come under pressure from uh, introductions of species, sometimes accidental, um, you know, from North America or from Australia, but then usually also. Uh, they've been introduced by people who wanted to farm them commercially. The bad side effect was that they brought with them some diseases that they had over time evolved to be able to cope with. So it's pretty much like, you know, when the Europeans came to North America and brought with them sort of diseases that were normal here, uh, and then these diseases uh, met with the Indians and had a you know, devastating effect on the population of the American Indians. So similarly, the European crayfish are uh, dying from uh, uh, a pathogen that is called the crayfish, or the disease is called the crayfish plague, uh, which is caused by a pathogen that these uh, American crayfish brought with them. And as I said, they can cope with it. Uh, ours can't. So the uh, fact that uh, the French uh, um, crayfish were brought to Ireland in a way uh, has been a good thing for the European species in that they uh, are, I mean, Ireland is now a place where there are some of the largest uh, populations that still remain uh, unaffected. And we've had, fortunately, very few outbreaks of the crayfish plague here. Question is, uh, you know, where those outbreaks came from, uh, uh, different uh, pieces of evidence that suggest that uh, at least sometimes those outbreaks may have been caused by the pet trade, or at least the, uh, the genetics uh, are surprisingly similar to uh, what is found in the Central European uh, pet trade, at least for some of those uh, outbreaks. But it's also possible, you know, if people bring live bait uh, from other places uh, or they haven't disinfected their angling gear uh, properly, it is possible that they that would also be a vector to uh, introduce the pathogen into a, a lake system. But in the in the Maravilli Kilruski lakes, you're really interested in them as they're not native, but you're trying to assess yeah. the populations. 
yeah, as part of yeah, they have been, those yeah. lakes have been um, historically have been uh, lakes where the the populations were size was uh, really good compared to uh, other places, and that's why they've and the reason why these sites have been selected. Uh, for conservation is also partly because of that uh, historically good uh, population size of the crayfish. Hmm. What is the what is the current situation with with uh, white clawed crayfish? Is are they like in a really terrible state? Like for example, freshwater pearl mussel, which as far as I'm concerned are very very bad, or are they like you know okay? I had a I had a like a signals from listeners that the uh, crayfish plague is is like a serious issue at least in some mm. rivers. Yeah. Um, so from from your perspective, like you 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 folks are very close to that. Like how how does it look like? So they they do reproduce in uh, so at least in two of the lakes there is a decent sized population. In uh, some lakes they appear to have disappeared. There has, historically, there's also been an attempt to uh, sort of reintroduce them into a lake, which we found also no evidence that that succeeded. So there's no su survivor, or um, because that particular lake has a connection to a river, you know, they may have just decided that it was better somewhere else <laughs> and have left. We don't know because that was a, a, a few years ago. Big difference is, of course, the generation time. So, you know, the pearl mussel is, uh, has a, is a very sort of slow organism in that respect and uh, takes a long time to mature something like, correct me if I'm wrong, Francis, somewhere in the order, at least 12 years or before they even reach a size sort of, yeah, uh, and then sort of like a, uh, yeah, the largest coin that you would have in your purse. <laughs> So, uh, and they can, I think the, the latest that I read was they can get up to 200 years old. So if you have got that uh, a, a good and reproducing population in your stream, then you know that that, uh, that must have been in good order for a very long time. Crayfish is uh, much shorter lived. So, you know, within uh, a year or two, the, depending on the, the feeding situation, uh, you would uh, have animals reaching maturity and, uh, you know, uh, they could reproduce. So if you had them in a hatchery, definitely in a year, as I said, outside depends on the, the food situation. Uh, on the island of Ireland, where it is unusual, though, in that that is the only species that we know of that's here. We are very, very concerned that the signal crayfish could be introduced here. There's actually, uh, NPWS have found a population of an Australian species at a site that they won't disclose for good reasons. Uh, so yeah, the yabby, yabbies, yes. they're called, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the threat is there, and again, that is probably because of pet trade. So because these days, I think you can almost buy anything on the internet. I think that's the biggest concern because they're also crayfish that, uh, like, if you think of the marble uh, crayfish, that is even uh, able to. Well, basically, if you put one animal in, it doesn't even need a sexual partner to reproduce. So that would be the worst nightmare, and they're very uh, good at reproducing and. Uh, so an animal like that, you know, could cause uh, devastation in an ecosystem. 
quite easily. We've done a horizon scan for the whole country for invasive species to see which species are most likely to arrive. So that's why we need all the monitoring. The more monitoring that, that we have on our lakes, Tommy, the better. You know, so this project has, the CAN project, Interreg project has allowed for uh, quite a bit of monitoring that we wouldn't be doing otherwise, you know, um, in the in the national programs. So we're try, trying to um, educate more um, citizen scientists too through various ways. And um, there is an app, um, the National Biodiversity Centre have an app that anybody can download I'm sure it's been mentioned before, but I always like to mention it. And you know, the the people can people can take photos and upload them. And you know, maybe they think it's invasive, maybe it's not, but it doesn't matter. The more the more these records that come in, the better. Because even if we we're trying to capture these species at the early stages, and it's all too often in freshwater, because of what I said earlier, you can't see what's there. We're not ca catching them in time. So we'd be really encouraging any um, any fisher fishers, as they're now called for equality and gender purposes, any fishers out there, anglers, anybody that just likes messing around in water in that are out in their canoes. If they think they find something, please take a photo and upload it. That would be great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, we had a, we had an episode uh, some time ago about with the. Uh, folks from the biodiversity Ireland. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, listen, folks. So, are you also dealing with the freshwater pearl mussel, or is it not part of a of a program? No, oh. that's not part of this program. No. Okay. Okay. You actually need a license. Yeah, you need a license. Just to mention that, Tommy. So, in case anybody's going out doing a survey themselves, you you, can, you if you think you found pearl mussel, don't touch them. Because you you can't you can't go near them. They're so endangered. Mm, yeah, and they're they're in a dire situation. So it's good to hear that the that the uh, crayfish is not that. Uh... There are native mussels in the lake. Do I mean other mussels in the lakes? So um, that's perhaps yeah. also worth mentioning. And we found in in one of our lakes we found uh, another invasive species. So the the zebra mussel. Ah. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, so yeah. Please, please yeah. tell us about it and what to do and what not to do. <laughs> well, the, uh, the people living beside the lakes actually were proud that they had several species of mussels um, because they could see that there were you know, large ones and, and small ones. And they, they are uh, you know, good people that take an interest in the water that they live by. So they said, you know, we've got quite a variety here. So we were intrigued and um, had a look and then we were all together disappointed to find that, um, you know, the smaller one actually was the, uh, the zebra mussel. Yeah. And now we, now we have, we have the quagga mussel too. So basically, Tommy, people need to check, uh, clean, disinfect and dry really. Um, so, so important. It's just, mo they move around attached to, Boats attached, very often attached to weed that's attached to equipment, to um, boat wheels, to, you know, in engines. So some, and but the the very they they reproduce in the summertime, and the young are very small, so you might not see them with a the naked eye. So yeah, moving boats around. And 
particular case also the uh, that is was actually the other thing that intrigued us there was that the uh, that was a lake where uh, there were no anglers or you know that is not as, as a lake without fishing stands and the probably the most likely route into that lake would have been the connection to the river so probably you know that whole river catchment is in a way uh, seasonally gets uh, these larvae and they just happen to get into that lake. So it's probably no fault of anyone living beside the lake or using the lake because they're also, it's very rare that somebody would be on a boat there. And usually they would think there's a farmer on the third lake of that uh, systems that sometimes has summer guests, but it sounds like these, uh, you know, they, they would also not bring boats usually. And that is also not the lake where it's in because it's the lake close to the river that has got them. Uh, so, yeah, they can they can move like that, and yeah. even lakes that you think are disconnected, they may be connected in the winter time when the water levels are up. So, yeah, yeah. I'll send you the paper, Jörg. I have a paper yeah. on. Yeah, my that. university is so also we did it on da- downstream transport. Yeah, close to the river Ban. So we had a PhD student uh, who was looking at them in Loch Ney and then found them all the way down from Loch Ney, uh, you know, throughout the band. So they have an enormous uh, mm. potential to extend their range. That is uh, something. And of course, where Jorg is now in, in Lake Michigan, there's a, there's, there are trillions in there. Yeah, no, in, in the I just lakes. heard the other yeah. day that they're also capable. Of, so initially they were just in the shallows, but they, they keep improving. Uh, I mean, for the muscles. <laughs> so they are now also yeah. on substrates where they previously weren't. Uh, so over time. And the, and the yeah. really, yeah. And the quagga muscles are taking over from the zebra muscles in the Great Lakes. So that's really interesting. Um, but these invaders, Tommy, are, I know we, we shouldn't be talking about them in such glowing terms. Um, it's it, it's we don't want them in the country we really don't um but we still we we do i you know we they're they they are so successful and for so many different reasons and we don't know an awful lot of species are introduced but maybe you know one in a hundred uh, one in a thousand may be the successful one so we people really need to know not to empty their aquaria into into lakes you know, releasing plants, releasing animals. They think they're being, uh, it's the humane thing to do, but they could actually be, be causing devastating damage to, to an ecosystem or more than one ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. So if you think about it like a pebble, dropping a pebble into, into the water, and the pebble is your initial site where your species is introduced, and then you get the ripples, the ripples, the ripples. And that's what happened with the zebra mussel. It, it came into the Shannon. And then it spread out. It spread up the Shannon, and then it spread out outwards from the Shannon because we traced it. I was studying it from its earliest invasion years, and it just had that ripple effect, and you could see it spreading. And eventually, it got into the Western Lakes, and it's in Loch Arrow as well. Yeah, in the lake that that we were studying for the Can project. Wow. Um, okay, so just just to just to finish off on on this because this I think this is important. You know, for sure, there's a lot of anglers listening to this episode. What would you, what what advice would you give to a responsible angler or for an angler who wants to be responsible? What to do? You know, they're done fishing in a lake. What would you recommend to do then? Disinfect your well, gear. 
there are really oh, yeah but but like like how 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 am i gonna disinfect my gear you know this is this is a question yeah francis is closely okay. cooperating with people who are really experts on that so yeah, so we call it biosecurity. So first of all, they should think about the gear they're buying, uh, Tommy. So probably better not to buy boots with felt soles because they're notoriously bad. At first, well, they can spread species very easily. So think about what you're buying. We know, anglers, that some of your fishing rods are way more expensive than my car is. Um, they're very, very expensive and precious, and you'd take them to bed at night with you if you could, probably. So I think, um, you know, you, you have to be reasonable about it. You know, we're not expecting you to put them into concentrated disinfectant where they may be discolored or you may be worried that they're damaged. But, you know, if you if you can clean them, you just boil the kettle and let the water, you know, cool down to, you know, maybe 60 degrees or something like that. You know, very hot, like as hot as your hand can take it and, and rinse off you. That's not going to damage your rod. Yeah, or your it's gear. 80 degree. Probably. Anything that you can take. Yeah, anything. It would be better if you could. Yeah. Anything that you can take apart and wash, please do that. Um, think about your bait boxes. They're really important because that you could be carrying water with you as well as actual, um, you know, uh, that has invasive species. Clean your your keep nets if you're a coarse fisherman. They're really important, and you can certainly put those into boiling water. If you can buy these Vercon or any kind of um, proprietary disinfectant, even. Um, um vanadine or something like that from your farmer's co-op and just follow the instructions on how to actually disinfect your gear dry it if you you know if you can and we know that you know you can take it you could take it you can take your boat some people can do this and some people it's difficult for them to take their boat and and clean it but in the local garage which you really should do that or if you've got a boat on your lake and you fish with, if you're Johnny and you fish with Mark and Mark has a boat on another lake, could you just try not to move the boats from lake to lake? That would really help. I was gonna say, I was gonna say that that in in Spain there's this regulation when when you're registering your your watercraft, your boat, your vessel, whoever you call it, you're registering for the body of water, and you cannot move it to a different body of for that precise reason. So for for many people, it's it's like a shock. Like, what what are you saying? I'm buying a boat and I can only use it on this lake. Yes, that's what your license is, and then you can change the licensing. But there's some regulation on that as well uh, that you you cannot basically game the system to change the registration. Well, all the time. we're yeah, but the education piece will always be the best anyway for, for sure to understand. Um, that. Um, and and also, I would also say to anglers. You know, so it has happened in the past that anglers have introduced fish. Chub, chub were introduced to Ireland on at least one occasion that they would like to introduce an extra, a, 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 you know, a good fighting fish into the war, into our waters. So please don't do that. Go and go and fish in the country where those fish are found. And um, certainly, if you're coming back into Ireland. From an, uh, if, say if you're coming from the Baltic states or somewhere, if you've been salmoned fishing somewhere else, make sure, really make sure that you clean your tackle because uh, Gyrodactylus, the salmon fluke, if we got that into Ireland, it would really devastate the industry here, the whole of angling, and it would, well, not the industry. I should completely not say that, but the actual native Irish salmon would be really under threat 
if we got that into our system. So um, Norway, the Baltic states, you know, it's endemic in some of the waters yeah, up we've, there. We've, talk, we've talked to anglers who've also told us that also on our sites they have actually in the past, I mean, we've talked to some of the people who had actually introduced fish into those lakes and now regret, you know, after they know how special they were. So that's uh, yeah, a that's always a temptation, but you know, we can only really ask people to refrain from doing that. You know, yeah. you will find surely you will find them in other lakes, but keep those, especially those designated lakes. Try to keep them the way that they are, because we never know what effects that will have on the whole system. Yeah, it'll affect all the plants and animals, and as well as that, in a very small lake, they poo a lot. You know. <laughs> <laughs> they produce a lot of nutrients themselves. Yeah, and then that they're right, not York? nutrient poor anymore. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and the other thing I wanted uh, to add to what Francis was saying is uh, again, I mean, I maybe you you know uh, better whether that actually is a practice that is widespread. But I've heard repeatedly that some people do bring live bait from lake to lake. So please not do that because obviously, if you bring water and uh, live animals in there, there is a fair chance that there's something microbial in there, like this, the, the crayfish plague uh, pathogen that uh, you would unwittingly also transfer into those lakes. Yeah. So we, we sort of strayed a little bit from the project because that's what we, who we are. We're freshwater ecologists. But yeah, just to say, we, we you know, people might say, well, what did you do in Loch Arrow? Do, you know, you talked a lot about these different things. Well, we, we did actually have a, a management uh, plan and where we put down jute matting onto the bottom of the lake. So there are, an, um, there's a publication on that. If anybody wants to just Google Loch Arrow, jute matting you'll find it um so we actually covered over um the the invasive weed and um stopped it from growing and so when we did some experimentation on that it's been done on other lakes but what we did was we we made a biosecurity route so we made a sort of a roadway out of the main fishing area where um boats can come in and out on that on that road as you might call it it's between boys so it means that they're not actually in training the weed on their boats um <clears throat> leaving the lake and spreading it to other lakes and we've got some really nice posters information posters up the side of the lake as well so anybody who might be traveling around ireland and wants to have a look around at loch arrow um it's the signs are there and it's a really beautiful lake so you should go and take a look at it anyway and lock key, lock key beside it, yeah. That's for sure. And it seems like you, your folks are uh, at least in contact a lot with anglers. Like overall, you know, would you would you say that anglers are you know like a environmentally conscious bunch, or would you say that there is yeah, a, like a negative I impact would. as well? Well, what I what I think about anglers is I think that they in many ways are part of the ecosystem in a way that they're part of nature in a way that a lot of other people aren't. And, um, you know, um, they are the eyes and ears. We often hear um, we get we get a lot of information as biologists from anglers. So um, personally, I, you know, I, I don't fish myself. I, 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 I sample, but I certainly um you know, um, catch and release, 
is if it's done effectively is the way to go. You're not affecting the environment too much as long as the fish is healthy going back in. They've got a got a chance and that the angler's got the fun of catching the fish and then putting it back. Yeah. Fantastic. But, um, um, it's it's you know, that's I can agree more. They're, they're part of nature. They're part of nature too, Tommy. Yeah, the ones I've they have always been nice people, but they've also been complaining about others that uh, you know, they knew were coming to the site. And uh, in some cases, we've also seen the uh, what they've left behind. So that is also you know, particularly sad if you uh, find rubbish on these uh, sites because I think, you know, cans, when you bring them, they're heavier when you bring them. So you should be able to bring them home when they're empty. <laughs> yeah. Leave, leave no leave no trace, Tommy. Yeah. I'm sure you've and take come your rubbish with no you, trace, folks. People. Take your rubbish with yeah. you. That's that's uh, that's. Uh, listen, listen, folks. I, I just want to ask you a question, which is again maybe a little bit of a, on of tangent of the can project, but um, very much uh, on topic of what we're discussing here. You already mentioned that one of those uh, species, the white white cloud crayfish. This is this is like uh, you know it became native at some point. What is your, what is your view on on the whole situation of agreeing, like what's native, what's non-native? Uh, because as far as I'm concerned, this is um, interesting and sometimes tricky conversation in terms of like, oh, look, that these things wasn't there, and then you know, nature is changing all the time, and we decide, like, as humans, we decide, like, okay, this is a point in time where stuff is native and this is what what we protect right and you could make an argument that then um those other signal crayfish or whatever you know they're part of nature they're they're better adapted to the environment and if we put those um those signal crayfish you know fast forward 100 years that they're native so what's your view on this my view is this, right? Back back then, you know, we didn't even have uh, when the when the crayfish was introduced, science was not well established in this area. We didn't even have proper names for species. So um, I think that now we do know we do know about the impacts and the potential impacts. So I think we need to have an informed conscience about it, Tommy, and, and not make, make these introductions now. I mean, in the past, they didn't know. The, the monks who brought them in were bringing them in for fish. Maybe they thought it was a good idea. Um, so yeah, my, that would be my, my uh, thesis on it. I don't know about yours. Yeah, I think uh, especially on those uh, protected sites, which are you know protected for a reason in that they're rare. In, in their characteristics. We shouldn't, certainly we should not try to change those because as I said, any introduction that you would do there could have unforeseen consequences. So, and, uh, you know, even as aquatic ecologists who have been dealing in that uh, or you know, doing research in that uh, subject for a number of years, I'm sure Francis would agree that uh, you know we don't really feel that we would be able to foresee the consequences of any such introduction in its entirety because you would really have to know the whole system. As Francis was saying, every lake tends to be a little bit special. <laughs> 
So, uh, you know, it could easily go, even if you think you know, it could easily go in another way. And there are multiple examples also in research where people thought if we only did that, we'd get at the system to react in a way that we wanted to. And then they found, oh, no, there's another mechanism in there that we thought wasn't that exp uh, important. And that actually is now the dominating one. So, you know, uh, for example, for... Yeah. Introduction of rabbits to Australia, yeah, yeah. for I mean, example. Yeah, the, the, the human history is littered with examples, I think, where, you know, you have uh, really large unintended consequences. So I think, yes, I mean, there will be changes in species and in some ways for the landscape. And that is, you know, in part is a natural process. If you think of the ice ages, uh, you know, and the trees slowly spreading out again towards areas that were formerly glaciated. And uh, so, you know, there will probably be other trees coming also to Ireland, and that's fine. But I think in these special places, you know, we should certainly not try to accelerate the change. <laughs> and, a, and a word you used twice, Jörg, was slowly. You know, you said that twice this evening, and I really liked that because that is the difference. Well, with the invader... It, sometimes it takes an invader a while to get established and it has this what we call this lag phase but then the change is so fast and you know you're dealing with species that are here we call them naive they're naive to to the to the invader and it's everything is these this is too fast you know this is like you went home this evening and your house was absolutely full of of you know a certain type of animal right <laughs> and you're trying to get in the door right they weren't there this they weren't there this morning you know and you can't if you go in there they'll eat you right so that's um nothing you don't want anything to be that sudden really i heard i heard about this concept of of evolution or naivety uh when it comes to predators or some other species that they're they're just cannot deal with the uh, non-natives listen folks so what at what phase is a project now? So how are you almost done? Like how much is left, and and what's where 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 are you now? Well, I've got a PhD student that that needs to to finish writing up, and I just like to mention um, the PhD students on the project who've been absolutely excellent. Um, so my student Darren Garland, he needs to finish up and write up. Um, I probably Jorg's, I don't know what stage Jorg's student is at. Other than that, um, your students, if you're listening to that, most. no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm meeting him on Thursday of this weekly meeting. No, I must say that, that, that the students have been, have done so much. And my student particularly has been involved in a lot of project management. So he's learned an awful lot of skills. He's been doing a lot of really interesting biomolecular work on looking at the, um, cyanobacteria the toxic algae in the lake and all sorts of different types of work so he could do a whole podcast with you easily so i don't know where jorg is with uh, with his student yeah raymond wilson is also writing up so you know there have been first uh, chapter drafts but there's still also a lot of data analysis to do so he's been uh, going very much into for example uh, uh, learning how to uh, measure radon in the lakes and oh, to yeah. uh, another thing they did. get a better estimate. I mean, we, yeah, so in the past they've always said, yeah, these lakes, they do receive groundwater. And he's, uh, this is the first time that we 
are trying to get close to a better estimate of how much groundwater at certain times of the of the year, and also to document how that uh, changes throughout the year. So he's been uh, you know doing a lot of work uh, also through the pandemic. I mean, he's been uh, working in his garden shed to try to. Uh, improve the uh, apparatus when you know there were uh, access restrictions to laboratories so both of them are uh, really dedicated uh, people and that's also one of the outcomes of the project is that we will have uh, two uh, you know new scientists who will have um, That's a, yes. while, 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 we, while we take a long time and we're very slow, we won't be here forever. So, yeah, I love that. I love the legacy of the project is, 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 is having these two new super scientists on board um, that have really learned to work with the larger CAN team. You know, they've been involved in a lot. They've given presentations and um, they've learned to work individually and in teams and, you know, huge thanks and kudos to the whole CAN team and to Interreg for funding it to, to allow um, the, these, these students to grow and learn. Yeah. yeah, also the crayfish we were talking about before is also, you know, that has been surveyed by the, the PhD students and is, uh, that always also leads to new questions, for example, where, you know, and how good is actually the, the surveying uh, technique that has been employed so far um, so uh, it's been done also mark recapture studies so where we've uh, used a bit of nail varnish for example to uh, to mark crayfish so that we could find them again so I mean that is they obviously they shed their exoskeleton uh, usually once a that's year. A lot, that's a lot of legs to paint the nails on Georg <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I wish it had been yeah. as, as delicate as that, so we're not that good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was also useful yeah. in finding out actually how they move. So, uh, if, um, you know, that's quite interesting. That's, uh, so you can see also how if you did get a pathogen into the lake, how quickly that would spread in a population like that, because there are individuals that sort of travel around the lake margin, we assume, uh, you know, several hundred meters. Probably the ones that have uh, um, like a competitive disadvantage. So it seems that, uh, you know, crayfish can lose claws and regrow them, but then they have tiny claws. They can't really fight with those. Uh, so it's amazing that you can regrow a limb. It's not that much good for your competitive edge in the population and we found that uh, it seems that animals that have had such a loss because they were involved in a fight that didn't end well for them that uh, you know, they may uh, have to work really hard to find a new place where they let them be <laughs> so, nature is very cruel yes yeah yeah that's true. That's true. Um, folks, I just have one other question. I read about the project that you were also um, looking at the um, management of the vegetation. Is that the vegetation like in the lake or is it like on the, around the lake? 
that was the vegetation, probably that 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 um, not all's weed that I was telling you about. Oh, this one covering it. But we did we did actually um, think at the start that we were going to have to look at the reeds around the lake to see reed beds are really important habitats for um, for bird life. Um, and we thought that we and and possibly small mammals, but it turned out that there was nothing wrong with the reed beds. But what we did do towards the end of the project, Tommy, is we we got a lot of the schools in the Loch Arrow catchment, and I'm really glad you brought this up now because I, I I needed to mention it. So we got the school kids on board, and we had them down at the lake and did some training with them on. Um, you know, not not quite as much as the PhD students, but they got they dipped their toes in the water. They learned about some of the insect life in the lake, and we're also producing a booklet for them. And for that's one of our legacy um, uh, items for the project is is a book that kids and lo- and locals can have just some information on the lake and about what the work we did on the lake and everything. So. Um, yeah, just hoping that the water will, Im- yeah, and hoping that the water, w- the water will improve in time. You know, it's, it's um, measured for the water framework directive. So, um, we, 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 you know, we, we hope that the more people know about it, the more, um, it just inch by inch, basically, because a lot of the inputs are very diffuse. So, people may change their practices a little bit and uh, improve the quality of the lake. So, is it mainly uh, based on education and and kind of um, highlighting people to change their practices, so to minimize the amount of nutrients they're going to those. Places. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I mean, I know you can talk to the industries different, the water industry, the wastewater industry, but for I think for management of for ecological management in general worldwide that that education and awareness plays a huge part it certainly does with uh, the invasive species with biodiversity um yeah we've got a meeting tomorrow in um in um atu sligo to talk about trying to um uh, engage people to work on the biodiversity in the town so it's all about the people you know it's people power um, we're, we're, we're such a kind of a useless species compared to all the other ones, even though we have all the brain power, but we just need to, we just need to, to put it into, into good practice, best, best practice. And people need to understand, you know, most times they don't know, they have no clue. So, um, but they love, they do love the environment, especially kids. And especially after COVID, a lot of people became very aware of the environment. And I think it's a really good time to get people on board to, to steward their own environment. Yeah, especially if they became aware of the local environment. I think that is much more rather than yeah. just, you know, going to other countries for holidays. That's it. That's it, Jorg. And they, they, they know they're part of it, you know. They, they're, they're part of it rather than being apart from it and looking at it like on television. They actually became a part of it because every day they were kind of doing the same walk and so they could see this particular flower coming up that particular tree they became very aware of their local uh, local environment you know that's so. very important that's very important because like like you, like you said people uh, k- kids especially they tend to when you talk about nature and animals they tend to think about zebras and hippos and elephants while they're usually not have much knowledge about what's outside their own doors and and, and this is again one of the one of the kind of repeat repeating themes in a, in a podcast that this education is very important because then 
kids who are aware and then growing up with that, then um, mm. they they will basically be pay more attention and and, mm. and you know even see that us. they actually have some play schools that are outdoors now. Yeah, like I heard kids that. Kids are spending uh, most of the time outdoors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's a that's a that's a good change. <laughs> not maybe not in Ireland. Well, I think you, you know, need the weather for it. You get a you get a good uh, waterproof jacket and you're good to go. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, folks, just to just to finish off, I'm I'm gonna ask you a question. I'm I'm asking all the um, scientists who who I speak with, and in in general. You know, uh, from the perspective of your work on the on these freshwater sites, but also wider picture of the nature, what are your um, uh, views of for the future? Are you overall optimistic for the future for nature for the planet, or are you rather you know not so optimistic? Um, well, I live in the present. As we all do, and 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 I I work on on what we have in, in the present with as many people as I can through through my work in education and research, and I am optimistic. I am optimistic, uh, cautiously optimistic. I think pe people are becoming uh, much more aware. I think our legislation is also heading in the right direction in terms of um, you know just. Uh, making member states sit up and and actually act on um, on uh, biodiversity issues. Climate change is a uh, is 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 a huge channel chan challenge, uh, and in freshwater ecology it certainly is. But I'm um, um, I live in the present, as I say. I don't have a doomsday scenario, and I just. You know, I'm I'm optimistic that people are are becoming more engaged and that there are more resources um, being put into this area. Hmm. Good to hear that. How about you, Jörg? Yeah, I've recently heard optimists uh, have a high chance of living longer. So I uh, would like to live longer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very selfish attitude. <laughs> yeah, but you know, so uh, I think, yeah, no. If you if you're not an optimist, basically, then uh, you just let let everything run its course. Then it's certainly going to end in in doom. So uh, I, you know, I have faith in the, uh, especially in the young people, also the ones that we're teaching. You have to recognize, though, that the challenge is enormous. Uh, it's also, you know, with my change perspective here at the moment, I see that, you know, there's an awful lot to do in changing uh, attitudes in terms of consumption because we're still behaving like there's no tomorrow. Um, so, and so the rate of change will have to be really, really uh, drastic. There's no, yeah, there's no way. Of I think we have to change. We have to change our culture, you know. And, and I was delighted. My my twenty five year old came to me the other day and showed me the four sweatshirts that he that he'd ordered online um, secondhand. He said these are all from the eighties. They're going to last me ten years at least. I thought, wow, that, that's we're we're getting stayed. You know, we're getting it. It's in some cases. It's about well, we all have to take individual actions. And I said, "Are you all your friends doing this?" And he said, "Yeah, absolutely." He said, 
that that's 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 the attitude we're taking so um i think you know the more education the better um and just a, and the more we work together in different ways so individual actions big actions and um yeah yeah uh, yeah i can I be, i'm optimistic support that uh, from my son's friends it seems that uh, you know there's a there is a, a, a different consciousness there in at least a, a large part of that uh, generation. Uh, so that's a hopeful sign. But as I said, the change will have to be drastic. And I think uh, most of us are, haven't really thought it through entirely, you know, the how big the change in consumption pattern would have to be to get into a good place. And the change that will be happening nonetheless I mean, that is apparent everywhere. So when I came here, for example, I saw uh, springtime and I saw trees with yellow leaves already. So, you know, the change also here in the, with their continental climates, uh, so the dry season setting in much earlier than it used to. I mean, that's, the signs are everywhere. So if we don't act now, you know, uh, it's uh, going to be an awful lot more difficult to uh, uh, ensure the survival of our species. <laughs> There isn't like a hint of a pessimist now, Jörg, and you're like overall optimistic. And like, <laughs> but that's a, you know, like it's, it's refreshing because usually, well, maybe not usually, but quite often I, I hear like a very uh, pessimistic view. So um, no. you two are we have to be fighters. And, and uh, we, in the grand scheme we, of things, on the average... Answer I'm getting for this question. You're you're up there in the optimism. Yeah, you know we have to keep fighting. We have to fight. I yeah. agree. It's so important. That's probably probably because we're dealing with young people. You know, if you were, uh, I can see that you know it would be easier to fall into absolute pessimism if you weren't. <laughs> yes, that's that. You know, this is a pattern I notice that you know that it it usually depends on the age. Like the the younger people tends to be more optimistic. So that's that's another observation. So I, I I agree. That's probably that's probably part of it, folks. Thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Um, yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks. I enjoyed and it. And thank thanks to Interreg for funding the project. Yes. Of course.